0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.
1: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who's writing a voting machine virus that will change every American's votes to Boris Johnson, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play a live interview I recently conducted with Michael Daniel, who is President Barack Obama's cybersecurity coordinator from 2012 to 2017, the critical years of Russian intervention on social networks. He now leads the nonprofit Cyber Threat Alliance, and we talked at length about the state of cybersecurity heading into the 2020 census and elections. This interview was recorded live at Manny's, which is a bar and event space in San Francisco's Mission District. So let's go there now to hear my interview with cybersecurity expert, Michael Daniel. I've been talking a lot to policy people this year and especially the last few weeks about a range of policies around employment, around talent, around AI, all kinds of stuff, and just recently have started to focus in on the 2020 elections. I was just at Facebook recently. Obviously, there was a news story today that they're meeting with someone in the government to talk about what they're doing, Twitter, Facebook, and Google. So I wanted to sort of get your uh, overall lay of the land of where you think we are right now, because there's been so so many worries about election tampering, around fake news, disinformation, you know, voting machines... You could
2: go sure. on. So the good news first. Um, the good news is that we're a lot better off than we were in 2016 for several different reasons. Uh, one is that our state and local governments have actually made some tremendous investments in improving their cybersecurity. Um, the federal government has gotten itself much better organized to help state and local uh, governments. They are, uh, almost any agency you talk to in the federal government right now has this as a very high priority. Um, We all as a society are much more aware of the potential for fake news uh, and disinformation or disinformatia, right? Mm -hmm. So the bad news, we've still got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are huge vulnerabilities that are still left in our electoral infrastructure, which we can talk about what that means and how I think we need to address that. And we still have no earthly idea how to really deal with Fake information and manipulation of information and the weaponization of information in cyberspace. Um, and so that's still a very much a big uh, topic of discussion at a lot of places, and I haven't seen any really good answers.
1: okay, let's start, let's go back up. You were your job was as cybersecurity head for the Obama administration. Correct. What did that? What does that mean?
2: So my official title was Special Assistant to the President and Cybersecurity Coordinator on the National Security Council staff, which is a very long, Right, But what it really meant was I was really responsible for three things. One was I was responsible for briefing the president and other senior advisors in the White House and keeping them up to speed with what was going on in cybersecurity issues. Um, Two, I was responsible for ensuring that the U.S. had a coherent policy approach to cybersecurity across the entire federal government. And three, um, I was in charge of uh, managing our response to significant cybersecurity incidents, like the attack on Sony Pictures, like the DDoS attacks on our banks, and other and the Russian interference in our uh, election.
1: Okay, I want you to grade yourself because let's start. Let's go back a little further because oh, that's of people, always a
2: loaded. You know, <laughs> well,
1: I think the Obama administration. I'm from Washington.
2: You know, we always give ourselves inflated grades. So um, it's, you know.
1: I don't. So <laughs> I I, I want to talk about the Obama administration's response to a lot of this because a, a lot of it happened during the Obama administration. Let's begin with the Snowden situation, which was revealed during the Obama administration. And it put a permanent, the relationship between tech and government is always going to be tense, obviously. um, But that put a permanent problem at the beginning of that. How did you look upon that? Because I think from the tech people I talked to, I think they were surprised and shocked by the extent of government spying on them. Um, even though that's what they do as a business plan for regular citizens. But talk about that, the impact of that. When Were you there during that period?
2: Oh, yes, I was there. Yeah. And, um, you know, within a couple of months, I actually uh, was, you know, had to go to Germany and deliver remarks at a big conference in Berlin. And that was a lot of fun, um, you know, immediately after uh, those. I mean, I-, I there This was, was no- on
1: Merkel. They're looking at Merkel's yes. emails. And- so-
2: this is a very complicated issue, right? Because from my view, uh, and this is not probably a position that's very you know popular out here in uh, on the West Coast. Snowden was a traitor. Mm-hmm. Um, he had sworn an oath uh, to protect the information that he released. That said, there were clearly practices that were going on that should not have been, and the need to fix some of those issues was very, very real. Um, I just think that the way that it was done was completely inappropriate and damaged a lot of other things, not just our relationship with tech, not just relations with other countries, but actually actively put people's lives at risk um, around the world. And um, so that's why I have a very complex sort of feeling about what uh, what occurred.
1: But it created a real gulf between tech and the government at a time that was critical, I think, where a lot of the Russians had started in 2013 to really focus in on the efforts they made that later came to fruition in 2016.
2: You certainly see a sea change in Russian behavior um, starting in the 2013 2014 timeframe. Um, prior to that, if you managed to find the Russians someplace, they vanished like mm-hmm. smoke, and they would just disappear, and you would lose sight of them for months or years until they would, you know, pop back up. Starting in 2014, they had a very different attitude. It was like a double dog dare you to kick me out of this network. Mm-hmm. Um, that you would find them someplace and they would actually contest control. We had never seen that kind of behavior before, and uh, it was coupled with a much more aggressive stance globally,
1: mm-hmm.
2: both in Ukraine. Uh, with what went on with Crimea, the but testing. also They just, were
1: testing. Yes, absolutely.
2: Um, and they were also becoming just much more aggressive. Um, and they had decided on a much more aggressive foreign policy at that point.
1: Okay, so Snowden was followed then by the encryption fight that President Obama was on the, but Jim, Jim Comey was, yep. although not everybody was. Ash Carter from the Defense Department was on the other side of it. But in general, I interviewed President Obama at that point, and he was pretty much on Comey's side around the encryption debate at, and Apple not giving it up. It also, again, created a, a lack of cooperation between tech companies and the government, which is necessary to fend off the Russians. Would you, or would you disagree with that? No, I think,
2: like, I'm actually old enough that this was the second iteration of the crypto wars that mm-hmm. I had been through. Uh, you know, people older than me talk about this was actually the third, you know, iteration. Mm-hmm. It probably is the you know, the nth degree of this, right? This has always been a tension within, you know, within the uh, idea of cryptography itself. I think that the, the frustration that I certainly had as we worked through looking at these issues is, it's the, the challenge, right, is that everybody wants the unicorn,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? Everybody wants the crypto that is perfect, except when you actually need it to be accessed because there's a real bad guy, mm-hmm. right? Since the unicorn does not actually exist, um, you have to start thinking about what the next best solution is. And that means you're actually making a, that's not a technical issue, that's a policy and political issue that we have to make as a society about where we want to put that line. And how much risk are we willing to take on one side or the other? And are there alternatives that you can follow, uh, mitigations that you can choose to do, but it always comes down to a risk. And how much risk and how much impact are you willing to have on one side or the other?
1: All right. So this backdrop: first, there was the, the the Snowden, then the encryption. When Cambridge Analytica was happening, parts of parts of the government were aware of the rush, the increasing Russian incursions. Was there enough warning to? You know, and then you had the Hillary Clinton emails. It just went on and on and on. Um, and I'm leaving out the Sony hacks, which happened before those that. Those are fun. Well, yeah, those, yes. I'm sure those were. Um, which should have been a sign because it was corporate attacks on yeah. corporations, which is happening with bots and everything else. But how would you assess going into these things? To relate. What I'm trying to get to is if the relationship between tech and government is bad, much was missed. Would there have been more warning to the American public about this by the Obama administration?
2: So I'm always very careful to try to uh, Monday morning quarterback um, mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Well, you were the actual so, quarterback, so yes, I'd like to know. The,
2: uh, <laughs> well, that's why, you know, it's, I mean, I think the part of it, right, so for example, if you take a step back and you look at the history of spying on political campaigns, mm-hmm. right, the Russians had spied on every major U.S. political campaign since the 1930s. Okay. So they had targeted every campaign since the 1930s. So the idea that the Russians would be spying on the major political campaigns for president was actually, (sighs) yes, okay, we know that that's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it wasn't terribly surprising when the first indication started that the Russians were doing what we expected them to do, which was try to spy on the political campaigns. Right. What was new was then actually taking the information and weaponizing it. Right. They had never done that before.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And that was actually an unexpected move in the US political context. Now, you are right that there were those who argued that because of what they had been doing in Ukraine and because of what they, how they had weaponized some of the information in Poland and Bulgaria and a few other places that we should have been more forward leaning on that. But that was an unexpected move in the, in the US political process. And so that was actually what kicked off uh, a much uh, more aggressive campaign within the U.S. government to actually look at what was happening and begin to try to do some of that outreach that you were talking about. So
1: talk about the outreach. Who was advocating for it and who was not in terms of making it public to the citizenry? Because this was being used on public platforms like Facebook and others.
2: So the question that you always have, right, is what is the Russians' goal? Mm-hmm. You know, what did we assess to be, their, to be their goal? And one of the things that you see is that the place where a lot of people had focused was on the voting machines. Right. Because those are, very, those are very visible. It's the way that most people actually interact with the, uh, you know, the election sure. infrastructure, because that's what most people see. And, you know, we'd had, you know, DEF CON had already run an entire, you know, hacking village there.
1: Yeah, and it had been a plot on scandal, obviously. It
2: it was like a Dan Brown novel, actually, you know, so. um, But it turns out that when you actually think about impacting an election at scale, doing it surreptitiously so that nobody notices, that starts to become a really hard problem Mm -hmm. because you actually have to get physical access to the machines. You have to change just enough votes so that nobody thinks that there's something fishy going on. You have to pick the places where the voting is actually going to be close enough to do that, where it would matter. We didn't even do a very good job of figuring that out, you know, before the election ourselves, let alone a foreign power doing that. So you start thinking, well, that doesn't seem like a terribly... Reasonable thing. But if what you want to do is undermine confidence in the vote, if what you want to do is undermine Americans' confidence in democracy, if you want to be able to claim moral equivalence with the United States, then you have a much broader set of things that you can do. And so then that leads you to this question of okay, So if we publicize very loudly what the Russians are doing, are we doing their work for them? If what they're seeking is publicity about attacking American democracy, by giving them publicity about attacking American democracy, are we essentially just doing their work for them for free? Um, And that was the debate that went on inside the administration with a lot of pushing and pulling about how, uh, how aggressive to be about you know, broadcasting what we thought was was going on, and you also have to remember that this picture is—we now have a much clearer picture, you know, looking back at it. But at the time, we were, you know, sort of assembling a puzzle in the dark with some fog around, mm-hmm. um, and so we were trying to put the pieces together as we were going along.
1: So, what when you look back at it now, do you feel like publicizing it would have been the better idea?
2: So, I think that had I been uh, in charge of the whole political apparatus at that point, I probably would have pushed for more aggressive outreach both to the state and local officials, but also in general to start talking about these, the issues of how we think about uh, information and uh, the potential for disruption.
1: We're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be back after this with Michael Daniel, who was President Barack Obama's cybersecurity coordinator from 2012 to 2017.
4: Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash itheroes. How do you assess what happened
1: with, I'll just use Facebook in general, because that's or YouTube where a lot of it went on, the two places yep. where most of it, but mostly a little bit on Twitter, um, but not as effective. Um, but Facebook and Google yep. is really where it happened. How do you assess what, how they were paying attention to what was happening? I've, I've had so many lunches yeah. with them where they said, we're not evil, we're stupid. Um, which I think that's their argument now. That's their basic argument, um, is we didn't know, which I was like, yeah, okay. I mean, I think that maybe you know, you're evil and stupid. But,
2: well, but, it's possible. Yeah. Um, the, um, there's an interesting strain that runs through a lot of tech uh, and a lot of online platforms. And I actually saw this multiple times. Um when we would engage with a platform that had been misused for the mm-hmm. first time, and you would talk to them, and since many of them are driven by this idea of making the world better mm-hmm. through technology, it never occurred to them that somebody would actually take their technology and use it to harm someone right. And so I think that there were I don't think it was stupid. I think there were blinders, and there were uh, there were biases there against the idea of weaponizing this platform that was in the minds of those that were working on it so clearly for the greater good.
1: Right, the idea that there are no consequences, that the inability to anticipate possible consequences is something I talk about a lot. Right. Is, um, this, or, or any kind of self-reflection of what, you know, right now there's a new book um, by Brad Smith from Microsoft. It's called Tools and Weapons. So any, any technology can be used as a tool Correct. or a weapon, like fire or a knife. Um, or something that it can be used for cutting right. bread or killing someone. They do say that. They do. I do not believe them when they say it because I think they they're adults that can anticipate possible problems. But you do think it's something within tech. When tell me a, me- a meeting. Give me an example of a meeting. Like you go to Facebook, so, you get your, you know, your fresh granola, your yeah. your oat milk. What happens next?
2: Yeah. So I mean, but you know, if you think about like a different service that uh, was out there the way that you could combine and collect and see certain information online mm-hmm. and you know we were talking with the the founder and the CEO of this particular company and was extolling all the virtues of this and i looked at him and i said this is, like a, this is like an intelligence officer's wet dream. I mean, this is like, you know, this is like fabulous because this is like, you know, a treasure trove of information of exactly how I can target people who are vulnerable. Right. And, you know, like do massive recruitment efforts from this thing. And the look he gave me was, it was so clear that the idea that anybody would ever take this information and use it in that way right. had never crossed his mind. It had never occurred to him that somebody might misuse the information to actually try to recruit someone as an intelligence asset.
1: So when you're, the government's talking dirty to tech right now, when, when you're saying that to them, when, when they wouldn't understand that, what was your next sentence?
0: So Mine is
1: always, are you frigging kidding me? You've got to be <laughs> kidding me.
2: So then what we talked about was, all right, are there ways that you can actually try to adapt the platform? Right. Right. And I would say that you know now, when you engage with Facebook, when you engage with Google, when you engage with those kinds of of platforms, there is now a much greater willingness to actually have that that discussion.
1: Mm-hmm. Should it be more than a willingness? I mean, that it's there there that it should be regulated. And uh-huh. then I want to get into sort of things where yeah. we are now, what we have to yeah, do.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I spent a very long time at the Office of Management and Budget as part of my career, and so I have a very cautious view towards regulation because Mm -hmm. the government's ability to get that right is often poor. Sure, Um, but let me me just say,
1: just for the crowd, there is no regulation right now. Correct. Zero. I think Wall Street has more regulation on how they do their bathrooms than tech has completely. And
2: that is probably true, and certainly if you look at other industries like healthcare devices or the energy grid or things like that. And so certainly there is this question of you know, ultimately, are there things that we need to put in place, and ins- both incentives and mm-hmm. sticks, if you will, that I think that is a very live and real policy debate that we should have.
1: All right. So when you think about the idea of a, of an industry which is compromises the richest people in the world and the most powerful companies in the world, and the richest, com- the highest valuation, I think seven of the top valued companies are now tech companies. Seven or eight of the top richest people in the world are tech people. Where should regu- the idea that we're even discussing lack of any regulation seems fascinating to me. But talk about where we need to think about that because the argument government isn't going to get it right is sort of lost among tech, certainly hasn't gotten it right at all yeah, by doing right. se- their self, whatever they call self regulation, which to me means no regulation.
2: So when you put it in the broader, I mean, so if you if you look at, like, so when did tech actually emerge in the United States, right, as a major industry? So it starts really taking off 90s. in the late 1980s, yeah, right, mid-1980s, right? Yeah. So this is just at the period when the U.S. has decided that we're going to deregulate a whole bunch of stuff, right. right? So, you know, you you have the deregulation of the airline industry, for example, in 1978. Right, And then you have the Reagan administration comes in and really starts to push this agenda and sort of this deregulatory approach that is actually continues to this day. So I think that when you put it in that broader political context, it's actually not surprising that this brand new industry that was driven by rapid innovation could make an argument that says don't regulate us because you're going to kill the innovation. And they got the
1: bill they needed, which was Section 230, which we've talked about.
2: I think now what you're beginning to see is that pendulum shift now it shifted in other places faster than here in the United States. So we mm-hmm. actually have seen that in Europe. In Australia,
1: right? and, New Zealand and other
2: places, right? And so I think that the US is going to have to play it's going to have to play catch up in in that area. We're
1: not leading regulation in any no. way, whatsoever, even though the companies are all US based. So right. talk about what So all that exists, I think, is Section 230, which is good for tech, essentially, which is an immunity, a kind of immunity. And there's little chips on it, but most people don't feel it should be overturned. What do you see as critical to cybersecurity? There's any number of things that you could do from a consumer privacy bill, which would be protective of people's data. From a cybersecurity point of view, what are the critical things that need to be done? And where are they? Right now. So, you know, there's a lot of election security stuff that apparently Moscow, Mitch, is that his nickname?
2: Some people call him that.
1: Okay, all right, is blocking. So talk about what needs to pass, if you could wave a wand and put it in place.
2: So there's a few things. One is that I actually, when you talk about cybersecurity, one of the things that I think we actually ought to look at is the, um, if you will, the social contract between the government, the uh, the citizens, and our telecommunications industry and our internet service providers. Because the truth is, we actually know what a lot of the bad traffic looks like. Right. And the truth is that with some investment, our telecommunications carriers could actually just drop a lot of that on the floor. Right. So that it never actually gets to people. But they don't because there is no incentive for, there's only downsides for them doing that right now. Mm -hmm. There's no upside for them you know the if they happen to drop something that actually was important to somebody they get sued right and so what we need to be thinking about is how do we actually create an incentive structure for our ISPs and our telecommunications carriers to actually do some of that traffic filtering on the known bad stuff that everybody would agree is actually bad. And this is not even about content. This Mm -hmm. is about like, you know, dealing with known obvious bot traffic or known malware traffic that you can easily identify. That right there could actually make a major dent Mm -hmm. in a fair amount of the malicious activity uh, online. Now, will the bad guys adapt to that? Of course, but we can at least make it harder for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one big area that we actually need to do. We also need to think about how we think about our critical infrastructure and beginning to do what some of the industries have done, healthcare actually being a lead in this, is actually saying you've got to pay attention. You have uh, a responsibility in addition to your uh, responsibility uh, for safety. You also have a cyber se- and a responsibility for privacy. You also have a cybersecurity responsibility mm-hmm. as well, and that you start to actually think of that as a, I think of that as the, you know, as the big triangle, safety, mm-hmm. privacy, and cybersecurity. And you actually can't have one of those without the other two.
1: Mm-hmm. So adding it to how do you make them do that? I, what is, how so is that I think that it's, it, it's,
2: you have to start thinking about that in terms of um, when you when you're thinking about new regulations, right, for medical devices, This is one area where the FDA has actually done a really good job of looking at when you start thinking about connected devices, they're actually building cybersecurity requirements into the regulation. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we don't quite know yet is how to do that in certain industries. We're still at the beginning of in how you actually integrate effective cybersecurity into those into those industries.
1: Into those industries. All right, so one is that, what else do, needs to be a, a national privacy bill? Does that really matter or does so, that affect cybersecurity?
2: Sure. Um, in a digital age, if you want to have good cybersecurity, you must have good privacy. Mm-hmm. Because um, if people's privacy, if their personally identifiable information is leaking, if organizations, PII is leaking, then it's hard to have good cybersecurity. And in fact, if you have, you know, like cyber nerd like me, uh, when an organization talks to me about information, the best information is the information they don't have, because then I don't have to protect it, right? So thinking about those kinds of questions about like, what's your data retention policy? How long are you, I mean, this is one of the issues that we found when we worked with both federal agencies and now when I've, you know, uh, have in the private sector looking at these things you often discover that the you know the organization in question has these giant pools of data that nobody has looked at in years floating around their organization because it was just easier to keep stuff forever than actually decide how to deal with the data right right and so actually requiring organizations to have data retention policies and actually have make decisions about what data to keep well what data to collect in the first place but then what data to keep and when to get rid of it would actually really help because it cuts down on the things that
1: people can steal, s-
2: can steal, and the stuff you have to protect.
1: Right. So, you're, to less data, the better.
2: In many cases, yes.
1: Right. Not having it at all, but see, that's against every. There's so many now. Since everything is collecting data all the time right. now, there's that's not going the other direction.
2: That's right, and I think that that's something that we actually need to actively think about it and manage rather than just sort of letting it happen to us.
1: Okay, what about election security? What do we need to do in the upcoming election to deal with it? I'll get to disinformation and also grid security, yeah. which is part of that.
2: So we need to continue to invest in the end-to-end security of the electoral infrastructure. And what that means is upgrading the security of voter registration databases. Um, And this is not usually terribly hard. I mean, this is not esoteric cybersecurity stuff. Mm -hmm. This is very much the basics. It's ensuring that you've actually got protections on both, uh, so as voters register, but then also how you produce the poll books, then how you actually tally the results and report the results. Mm -hmm. And so uh, thinking about that from end to end and, you know, Upgrading the security of that across the United States.
1: What, what is the best way to do it? I just looked at one. I was just about Microsoft and was looking at uh, an encrypted voting machine that also had this incredible thing called paper yep. um, that they're using. And everyone was extolling the virtues of paper, a paper trail, to be able to match the digital one.
2: I certainly think that that is a critical component of it. Although, again, I the voting machines to me are the least uh, of our problems. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I'm much more worried about an adversary going into a voter registration database and flipping the second and fourth digits Mm -hmm. of everybody's address. So now that when you show up to the polls, your address on your driver's license does not match the vote, the address in the poll book. So you either can't vote or you have to do a provisional ballot. Long lines start forming. Reporters come outside. Cameras everywhere. Now you've got you know chaos, right? And that's what's reported. Those are the kinds of things that I'm worried about. So how do you actually upgrade the system to ensure that you've got data integrity Mm -hmm. uh, in the system? And so that if changes are made that are not authorized, you actually are aware of those. So it's the
1: voter registration. It's voter registration.
2: It's also tally. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you actually communicate the tallies from the individual polling places? How do you actually in many jurisdictions, that's um, a pretty fancy piece of software called Excel
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: that is yeah. used to do the the vote tallying. So um, instead
1: of 600, it's 60 or whatever right. that they could- yeah,
2: Or even just that you DDoS that, mm-hmm. right, you know, so that um, those beautiful red blue maps that the uh, news, the major networks like to carry suddenly just don't show anything on election night. Does that actually impact the overall actual certified result down the road? No, but it sure makes it look like things are really bad that night.
1: Right, right.
2: And so those are the kinds of things that we should be working to make it much harder to do. What about
1: allowing people to know that their ability to track their votes, like it's almost putting Mm. a sensor on people's votes so they know their vote was counted so people can check on so
2: their So my worry about that is that if I can, if you can track your vote, I can track your vote, and so the whole reason we have secret ballots is so that you know people feel comfortable taking controversial positions, and so that right. makes me a little bit, that makes me a little bit nervous. I do think that having auditable, well, not what
1: you voted, but that you voted,
2: and that might, you know, I think depending on how you that, implemented technology, that's been the brought to me by a lot yeah, of people. The that, idea that, that probably, you will
1: be able to follow, yeah your vote and see that it was actually counted by a voting yeah. machine.
2: I mean, I think that the, you know, the paper trails and being able to have auditable mm-hmm. results is actually really important.
1: Do you think that's going to change in terms of the number of, of voting machine companies or?
2: I think it will. I think the pressure on them is pretty high right now and that will, that will actually begin to change.
1: All right. So voting machines, what about hack uh, disinformation? What needs to happen there? So we're gonna get to some questions. Yeah,
2: this is a much harder problem to think about because you're actually dealing with a whole lot of stuff that's actually has nothing to do with technology, Mm -hmm. right? You're talking about people.
1: Well, it's just technology is the
2: means. It's a means. And it it amplifies
1: and weaponizes in a way.
2: It's human psychology, right? I mean, so there are now lots of studies about yeah, I mean, so all of you probably have gotten the cybersecurity training. Uh, usually, some really boring video with you know somebody saying, "Don't click on the link,"
1: right?
2: You know, and the truth is, we've now got lots of data that shows there's about a residual three to four percent of the population that will click on the link,
1: right? Always, no matter what you do, right? right?
2: And it's just human psychology. <laughs> and that
1: includes John Podesta, uh, apparently.
2: Yes. So the well done, John. So this gets at you know when you think about. Um, disinformation. This is really about how are you feeding into people's confirmation biases. How are we thinking about critical thinking about information that we um, that we get? Now, there's there's actually some interesting things that provide some insight and some possibilities into this. So there's some work that's been done that shows for example that in certain populations that have been subjected to this over long periods of time, they actually get better at being resistant to it. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so, you know, and there's actually an old story, if you're an old Russia hand and you talk to Russians who were there during the Soviet period, you will actually notice that all Russians of that age read their newspapers from back to front. Because if there was any actual news in the newspaper, it was on the back page. Mm -hmm. And the only stuff that was on the front page was the propaganda that the government wanted you to read. So you start with the stuff at the back because that was where it might actually be interesting. If you also think about how we look at 19th century advertising, we usually laugh at it because it's pretty simplistic. And if you ask my 10 and 8-year-old, is everything that you see in that advertisement true? They would tell you no. Mm. They know that already at this age because they've been exposed to it from a very early age. Uh, and they have been, and we have taught that not everything you see in an advertisement is going to be true. And so, you know, I think those start to hint at where you we can start to build resilience to, um,
1: well, that's, that's technological know, education or, right. or media education. That's
2: right. But And I think that what applies in media education more broadly is what we also need in this area. I don't think that the election information is that different from other kinds of information online.
1: Right, but it has more resonance. You it has more resonance,
2: it. but, I mean, if you, you know ask any doctor what they think their least favorite thing is and they'll probably tell you WebMD.
1: No, Dr. Google is what they say, um, where people Google their whatever malady they have. Or think they have. Yeah, I think they have. But in this case, it has actual, it's just a doctor being irritated by someone and too bad. When you think about that, should political advertising be removed then from social media given how much it amplifies it compared? Like you couldn't put those things that were on Facebook on a television station. Yeah. You can't put them on a radio station. You can't. It doesn't have one. The impact, and two, you just can't do it. Um, should companies like Facebook and others, who are making enormous amounts of money from political advertising, just not be able to have it? Because until they can handle it,
2: I think that beyond just you know sort of takedown or removal, I think we actually ought to really think about sort of other modes as well, which is sort of you know flagging much more of that content. Um, and thinking about providing additional information, maybe even countervailing points so that, you know, uh, sort of the old concept of equal time, right, that the media used well, to have to that's do. That's
1: what Josh Hawley you know, is trying, which seems um, insane at this point. You know,
2: but I think that it, we should definitely explore some other of those rather than just trying to block that political outlet entirely.
1: Do you think that would ever happen, the idea that we shouldn't have political advertising on social media?
2: I don't think in this country, but I certainly think in certain political contexts that might be true. Well, they did it in
1: France. It yeah. worked rather yeah. well. Do you think it's a mistake?
2: I actually do, because I think that any time you're starting to suppress kind of that that political speech, I think that's a very dangerous precedent to set. And I would, I would very much want to look at other solutions before we got to that point.
1: Yeah. Also, Brad Parscale would cry big, weepy tears. Um, so, uh, that's his his jam right now. Alright, we're going to get to questions in a minute, but lastly, I want to tell you about what do you the most you think is the most critical that citizens do and government officials do right now that has to happen before the twenty. I mean, being cynical is not really a defense. Like, we're not Russians. We shouldn't have to read from the back. You right. know, we should assume that the stuff in the front is the actual news. Um, what do you imagine the media has to do, the Well, I'm not going to say the president because he just does a. He's trying to undermine, from what I can tell, um, with his sharpie today with the weather maps. I mean, he'll undermine anything. Did you all see that news? Oh my God, Jesus! (laughs) Anyway, I'm not going. I'm not going to give you an easy one on that. But what do you? What I'm not going to talk about this administration because obviously. They're not interested in this topic. But what do you need to do as citizens, the media, and government? The, th- the one thing each of them has to do, and then let's get some questions from the audience.
2: So I think from, uh, you know, from a citizen standpoint, it's to, one, it's to start this education process, to be critical and to think about what you're actually seeing and not be passive consumers of information. That has always been true. By the way, it just happens to be more relevant now because we're awash in information as opposed to actually having to really work at getting information. I think, from a government point of view, particularly at the state and local level, continuing to invest in increased cybersecurity and figuring out how the uh, state and local governments can work with the federal government and with the cybersecurity industry to actually be uh, both proactive and improving our security, but also developing the incident response plan so that we're ready if something goes bad. And then, you know, I think really uh, from a media standpoint, it's really also uh, thinking through that, the question of how do I actually not just pass along the information, but actually Like with Sony, they were
1: publishing the emails that were stolen or Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah. That's almost impossible these days because the twitchy nature sure. of yep. reporting everything is all equal, essentially. We're just not reporting it. That's almost impossible. Possible. There's always some right. outlet. And then lastly, what is right, right now there's a meeting between the big tech companies and the government on this issue. What would, If you were sitting there, what would you tell them they need to do?
2: So I think there's a couple of things. One is there needs to be much better... Uh, communication flow so that you actually have the ability to identify problems early and surface that and combine information from various from various sources. And then you want to actually really start to work on that uh, those incident response plans so that you know what you're going to do when the bad day happens um, so that you're not making it up as you go.
1: And what is that bad day? What does that look like?
2: Well, I think it could be a lot of different things. I mean, it could be it could be a discovery that, um, in fact, you've had a major penetration of uh, several voter registration databases in several different states. It could be uh, the discovery that, you know, we've actually had a very well sort of orchestrated um, seeding of bad information to legitimate users so that what's actually happening is the Actual people spreading the information are legitimate users, but it's all been seeded from, you know, a bad source. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are the kinds of things that you want to begin to develop uh, an incident response plan to.
1: And the nation continues to be Russia. Is that in this from your perspective or are there other nations? Only because it seems to me that they lost the original Cold War and this is a way to win it. In a different way.
2: Well, I think it's certainly from their perspective, they very much want to argue for moral equivalence between what they do and what and the United States. The Russians will, are very, very good at this because they've been pursuing this for hundreds of years. The Czars mm-hmm. were past masters at information manipulation, and that's been something that has been part of the Russian political tradition for a very long time. Um, But they won't be the only players in the game.
1: Is there anyone else that's...
2: Sure. I mean, you can imagine uh, several of the disruptors. So Iran, Mm -hmm. uh, North Korea. You've also got various interest groups. So the, you know, hacktivist groups or terrorist groups uh, that would have an interest in doing this as well. So there's going to be a lot of people that learn from this, you know, this playbook. And you'll see it not just here in the United States. You'll see it play out in other, other places. I mean, I'm fully expecting to, you know, Uh, see this play out in elections in South America and in Africa and other places like that.
1: Which has already happened. Yeah. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back after this with Michael Daniel, the leader of the nonprofit Cyber Threat Alliance.
0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots. But AI is more than a novelty. And it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI.
5: Support for this show comes from Fiverr, the world's largest marketplace for freelance services. In the fast-paced world of business, every decision counts. And when it comes to hiring, there's no room for guesswork. That's why Fiverr has developed solutions for businesses to make outsourcing projects simple, quick, and compliant. You can gain access to curated talent through Fiverr Pro's catalog of top freelancers, organized by skill and experience. Streamline your projects with a user-friendly dashboard where you can track progress and collaborate with your team. And for anyone needing the highest level of white glove service, Fiverr Pro's project partners can manage multiple freelancer engagements for you. Project partners will outline requirements, assemble a roster of freelancers, and manage a schedule to ensure your deliverables are completed on time. Ready to scale smarter? Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's profiverrf F-I-V-E-R-R, dot and use code VOX.
1: Okay, questions from the audience. Oh, lots of them. Okay, whoa. Okay. Um, Let's start back here, right there. Um, Thank you both for this discussion. I see that the 2020 election will probably have the record amount of spending. I see people giving their left kidney to ensure someone gets elected or someone doesn't get re-elected. What concerns do you have with cybersecurity as there are going to be so much money and so much profit to be had?
2: Well, I think that the... One of the one of the challenges that we have in this area is that there's a lot of distrust that you see between state and local election officials and the federal government. There's a lot of distrust between election officials and the cybersecurity industry. There's distrust with the vendors that actually sell the voting machines and all of those sorts of things. And to me, the money just makes that more difficult, right? Because it makes people suspicious of other people's motives. So, if you're an election official and you've now got 17, you know, cybersecurity companies that are showing up, saying, sure, we know how to solve your problem, but we actually haven't talked to any of your people to understand what your problem is, but just buy our widget. You know, that's not not conducive to building the kind of relationship that we need for actually improving cybersecurity. And so part of the challenge is that building that kind of trust and relationship takes time, but we're on a clock. Um, and so that's, to me, one of the, one of the bigger worries that we, uh, that we have. And so in many ways, I look at this as actually not just a 2020 problem, but it's a ongoing problem of how do you build um, the trust in, uh, across that entire infrastructure. Um, that we need in order to actually deal with these problems over the long term because this is not going away.
1: One thing, though, is that a lot of the um, weaponization, everybody catches up. Like, everyone knows the tricks that they use and then they catch them. And the question is, what's the next trick? Trick. You know, you saw the Pelosi video, um, which worked for a second, but there's going to be more sophisticated versions of that for sure. And it only needs just a second. It just needs to be timed exactly right, just the way the Clinton emails came out right after the pussy-grabbing thing. Like, that was so obviously timed and, in, in a lot of ways. So it's, that's what you just need to do, just a small kind of stuff, little stuff that'll affect. And then you'll never know, and that's the whole point of it. The Russians just want to create discord and, yep. and ghost-like. You never yes. see it, and then they leave, and then you don't know which was real and which wasn't. That's the whole point. Um, right here.
3: Hi. Hi. Um I religiously follow your podcast, so thank I, you so much for okay. doing whatever yes. you do. I am a god. Yeah. <laughs> thank you.
1: We have some good ones. I have Marianne Williamson next week. What do you oh, think? Oh, yeah.
3: You have some amazing guests all no, the No, I really time. am interviewing yeah.
1: her next week. I have to read her book all weekend. I'm That's awesome. excited. That's awesome. Looking forward
3: Thanks. to it. So uh, my question actually is that um, given that some of the big tech companies have, in part, due to their failures in putting in the adequate protections... Have really caused American democracy some harm, especially in 2016. Do you think this is a reason for those companies to actually work closely with the government to perhaps, I guess, build out some more safety features into their election infrastructure to improve, um, you know, as you mentioned, just like election security? Are any of these private companies contracting with the government to do this sort of work or dedicating any R&D resources? And on that note, what do you think about the potential for any sorts of emerging technologies to protect elections? I know, I know there's a big, um, people talk about blockchain voting. So I want to hear what, what you why think don't about you that. Get
1: on to, I'll just very briefly say they, you don't want the government to be working too closely with, with companies, right? On one, we're not Russia. We're not China. We're definitely not China. At the same time, there are certain things that tech has been allowed to do that. That networks can't do. Like they they get to do any kind of, their advertising is so messy compared to what you can put on a TV station or anything else or a radio station. And it's so much riper for abuse and so harder to track that I think the way they sell political advertising has to be regulated. I think how they do a lot of their data collection needs to be, but that's another issue. But they, they definitely haven't been regulated in any way around political advertising. And that's a That'll be a free speech question. Everything else, so. blockchain. Yeah, I mean, I think
2: the when you look at the underlying drivers behind some of this, right? The um, the economics of uh, and the the incentive to actually work on security of products is very low. You know, the driver is, and the assumption in tech is first to market wins, second to market dead. There is no runner up. It's A or F, and so the incentive to actually take a little bit of extra time and ensure that your product has been through some testing and has actually, uh, you know, passed some security reviews is just not there. And so the that underlying incentive problem is is something that we have to figure out a way to address. And this this is like. You know, whether you're talking medical devices, your connected car, your toaster, your light bulb, you know, the next generation of iMac or whatever. So, I think that the other thing is that most of this is actually, we know what we need to do. There are reams of documentation on good cybersecurity practices that would address 95% of the problems that we have. So, it's really not a matter of figuring out what we need to do. I mean, yes, there are a few sort of what I consider to be R&D problems out there. So, for example, if you actually look at what some of the best research shows, right now, you generally, uh, using the best coding practices that we know about, you will generate about one exploitable bug per 30,000 lines of code. That sounds okay until you realize that your average connected car runs about 500 million lines of code. So the math is kind of against us there. What we don't know, like we actually don't know how to write code better than that. We don't know how to write code in a way that you only have one exploitable bug per million lines of code or per 10 million lines of code. So that's an actual R&D problem that we need to address. But there's a lot of other things that we actually do know how to do that we really just need to do.
1: And blockchain, I'm going to, because I want to get to more questions.
2: So blockchain is certainly a, you know, a possibility, although I think that you have to ensure that certain conditions are met because it's actually possible to thwart blockchain as well.
1: It's going to be traceable. Uh,
2: Yes. And so the, there are some inherent challenges there, but again, it, it has some applicability in this space.
1: Yeah, I think we should go back to stones and a box, but that's just me. Um, okay, right back here. And then we'll go over here.
3: Thank you for being here and for your thoughts. I'm curious about a federal privacy law or a federal cybersecurity law and your thoughts about whether we should, as a country, have one, we are likely to have one, and if we did, what would you love to see in it? What would be your wish list of elements?
1: I'll give you a yes and a no. Go ahead.
3: <laughs> so I definitely
2: think that a federal privacy law would be beneficial because I think we're finally up to 49 privacy laws, um, you know, uh, across the, the world? country. No, no, in the United States. No, there's
1: 12 in states and then California. Well, 49
2: different states have varying forms. Yeah, but the of, the
1: real privacy laws that are passing this yeah. year, there's 12 really significant yeah. ones and the California one goes into effect which will be the de facto privacy regulation of this country. I mean, it will yeah. be. And then there's Europe. Right, And so whatever the most stringent is will be the one the that, most part. that they fall. But 1 in 8 but, people live in California, so it's going to be the law.
2: The um, but I do Go think Gavin, that Newsom. having a Having some, you know, commonality across the country yeah. would actually be, you know, economically beneficial because you could, um, they you, can't could do it. You, yeah. you could simplify sort of, you know, compliance with that. I do think that in terms of a cybersecurity law, I actually don't know that. Well, first of all, Congress wouldn't actually pass anything. But beyond that, um, right now, but I think the um, the challenge is we don't actually know what we would put in there. And there are certainly things that I think need to be pursued, um, but they're not the kind of grand changes that really, you know, drive legislation across the finish line um, right now. Again, it comes back to we, a lot of this is about we know what we need to do. We just need to actually generate the political will to do it. And so that really has as much about trying to look at incentives and get the incentives aligned as it is about the actual underlying law.
1: Most people in Washington think 2021 before there's a national privacy bill because it won't happen next year in the election year. And no, it's not a good election topic. It just, except for Elizabeth Warren. So, you know what I mean? It's just not, and that's not even her top one. So, and then we'll go over here.
4: Um, So you talked a lot about security with regard to elections. Could you talk a little bit about security with regard to Census 2020 and what you're tracking (laughs) there? Um, There's a lot of conversations around misinformation, disinformation. Mm -hmm. This is meant to be our first real digital uh, census. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts there.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think this is one area where we're very much in danger of violating the if it ain't broke, don't fix it, um, you know, uh, rule, which is that... Again, when we actually digitize information, and if you don't think through what the change in digitizing that information actually means in terms of the threats that can be applied to it, um, you can get yourself in trouble. And so, for example, that's exactly what happened with the Office of Personnel Management. So we took all of the records that had been long stored in a cave, literally a cave, and we started to digitize them. And nobody really thought through what that meant in terms of the change in the threat vector. Because when they were in the cave, like what were, like at the time that was during the Cold War, so what were the Russians going to do? Back the semi up to the cave and stand there at the mimeograph machine with the purple mimeograph machine? Any of you old enough to remember purple mimeographs? Yeah. You know, in the Russian fur hat. No, that's not going to happen. Right. But you digitize it, and suddenly you can carry off all of that information in under two weeks. And it only took them two weeks because they actually had to learn Unix. But that, you know, so what worries me is whether or not we've actually fully thought through from beginning to end what making the process changes that doing that digitization for the census actually means. And if we actually thought through all of the ramifications of that, and I can almost assuredly say the answer to that question is no, we have not. And so myself, I would prefer to be much more cautious um, in, that, uh, in that regard and uh, being very selective about the way that we adopt technology in that area to make processes easier, yes, but also that's a very, you know, there's, and you don't even have to go to the level of, uh, you know, sort of adversaries. There's a lot of money that rides on the census, Right. Um, And so there's a strong incentive to skew numbers and other things just to drive where federal dollars go. Um, So you don't even have to go to a foreign adversary to create scenarios where somebody has an incentive to mess with things. To put money where it
1: All right, two more questions. One over here, like right there, tall guy standing.
5: Thank you, guys. Uh, My name is Mick. I'm actually from Ukraine. Uh, My question is that... uh, you know, those uh, cyber war began probably in 2008 around Georgia time invasion mm-hmm. of Georgia. And then it's kind uh, of evolved in what happened in Ukraine in 2014. Yep. And we had an election here, in, I mean here, in Ukraine. You and, did, yes. And we had a new type of warfare when it comes to cybersecurity, yep. there were through files. How do you see collaboration of the United States and sort of country like Ukraine, We could probably see a lot of those things coming for the first time? Yeah. And how would you um, collaborate with a government where um, it's so closely tied to Russia? So it's, you have a, uh, it's, Th- this it's is very
1: like yeah, this, this is your moment to whack the Trump administration.
2: Yes, and I think the, uh, what the United States should actually do a much better job of is learning from the experience that other countries have had, right? And so I do think that You know, we had excellent cooperation with Ukraine in 2015 and in 2016 um, with the attack on the power grid there. And there was actually a very robust exchange between uh, the Ukrainian power operators, the Ukrainian government and the U.S. government and um, our power operators here. Um, And we learned a tremendous amount from doing that exchange. Um, And so I think that... Um, we very much need to build on, uh, on that experience. I would say more broadly, you're correct, and you will now, I think, see almost every major conflict that happens will have a cyber component. Or another way to put it is some facet of the conflict will occur in cyberspace and will occur through cyberspace uh, to generate a physical effect in the real world.
1: How do you assess the Trump response, the Trump administration response?
2: So this administration has been very uncoordinated in what it has done. And they have some individuals that have done some really phenomenal work. I have tremendous respect for the folks at DHS, Chris Krebs, like who's the director of CISA. They have really done some phenomenal work. there are people at the Pentagon that have continued to work very, very hard. There are people at the State Department, like Rob Strayer, who you know, continue to work very hard. But the, the issue for them is that they are, in effect, sort of trying to flail against the tide. Um, and this administration's lack of vision and lack of uh, prioritization at the center is definitely hindering those individual agencies from doing their jobs
1: effectively. Okay. Uh, last two questions back there, and then...
6: There. I was going to mention, I used to work with Chris to set up the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency um, that was helping protect the 2018 midterm mm-hmm. elections. And one of the biggest challenges that we saw um, at this, the state and local level from a cybersecurity perspective was that a lot of the election officials didn't really understand which cybersecurity vendors are actually yeah. credible. And so if I'm Kapersky Labs and I go to an election official and say, hey, I have free time testing. Let's protect, you know, let's secure the election here. Um, It's really hard for a lot of people at the local level to discern who they give access to. And so my question is really around what can we do about this from more of a cybersecurity education standpoint? Should there be a whitelist, blacklist, et cetera? Because for everyday people, these are quite unknown.
2: Yeah. And
1: who should do it and who
2: should
6: who
1: should
2: do it. Yeah. I mean, this is actually a broader problem than just the electoral than election officials. Right. I mean, if you actually ask uh, chief information security officers right now, um, what's your biggest problem? They will tell you there are 3000 security vendors out there. And I have no idea like what the difference is between them, like what their products do. How does, you know, product A fit with product, you know, 25, um, along with Mango, you know, uh, these are like completely different things. And so that integration is very much a problem. And then you compound that in a lot of those places, particularly local jurisdictions, right, where as, you know, um, as one person uh, put it today, at another discussion I was at, you know, they went to this particular locality and they were like, and so we met with their tech team in their cubicle, All two of them for this fairly major city like had two guys, you know, doing this. Right. And so and they're probably, you know, Sally and Frank, you know, in addition to their responsibility as, you know, the IT people are also probably managing the garbage contract. Right. I mean, so it's there's a capacity problem there uh, as well. And so this is where I do think the federal government has the potential to play a, a role. But we also have to be very careful in that. Uh, in that area
1: okay two more quick questions right here and right there okay let's start here and then you're the last question I know you've had your hand up a bunch
6: hi my name is Laura I worked on the Clinton campaign launching their digital voter protection program mm-hmm. and um, it was pretty disheartening because we've collected troves of information of misinformation and voter intimidation at the polls and a lot of other things but nothing was ever done with that data so my question is, how do we ensure that that doesn't happen again in the next election? How do we capitalize on that data and use it to foster where did our you, democracy?
1: Where did you send it within the...
6: No, I worked within the campaign, in and the it cam- was with the legal team, the Hispanic team, and the voters. I mean, I'm saying,
1: where did the data... Where did you put, just put it, it out? It
6: just It's there, and I have you know an NDA that I can't really put it out there, so nothing's been done with it, but it seems like such a... Can you a- talk
1: to Hillary Clinton about releasing it? I don't know. But why well, has well, it been released? Well,
6: well, that's my question. My question is... What do you think the barriers would have been? And because I personally am very interested in having that conversation furthered.
2: Yeah. So I think one of the challenges that that and if you know, as you were involved with the campaign, you undoubtedly know, right? Is that there are eight thousand election jurisdictions in the United States, and we we explicitly designed our system not to have centralized oversight, and there are many. Reasons why we did that many beneficial reasons, but one of the downsides is that then all of those kinds of issues have to be handled very much at the local level um, and so the um, and, Unless you can actually tie that specifically to something that goes with the Voting Rights Act, then that's a Justice Department issue But beyond that it's a local problem and that's one of the that's one of the hindrances of our of our system beyond that, you've now exceeded my expertise. So,
1: Or you could leak it to a reporter, not you, but someone who has access to the data could leak it. I mean, that sometimes works. I don't know, it's just a tip. All right, um, and, or else we'll text Hillary Clinton and get her to do it, what do you say? I'm super open to it. I will do that tonight, okay. I happen to have her phone number. <laughs>
0: Hi, so my name is Anil. I'm a fellow at the Aspen Tech Policy Hub as well as a product manager for the US Digital Service. Um, Excellent. Hello. So, thank you. So my question is, um, we talked about Snowden, we talked about cryptography in the San Bernardino case, talked about communications and distrust, right? I'd love to hear the reasons why tech companies or even individuals, more importantly, should actually trust the government to get this right. I mean, it hasn't really happened yet in, in so many ways. So what would you say to that?
2: So I think that at the end of the day, at the level of the civil servants, at the people that are out there on the on the front lines, the reason they do what they do is because they believe in the mission. And I think that is what forms the basis of where you can actually build both trust and a way forward. Because the at the root of it, that's the desire to actually get the mission done. And I think if you come at it from that angle and as a way to solve a problem, then I actually do think that there are ways for the government and the tech sector and other sectors to actually cooperate and make progress. And we've done this in other areas. You know, the level of cooperation that we actually have between the finance sector, for example, and the U.S. government, in combating both fraud and uh, money laundering and other things is very high. Child pornography. And that's another area where there's been a tremendous amount of progress. And so I think that there are places where you can where you can find that and where that has actually worked well. Um, but it requires actually thinking through and approaching the problem not from a confrontational standpoint. And this requires work on the government side. I'm not putting all the burden on the private sector. I'm but from a, you know, as a, I can speak as a former civil servant that, you know, this is, you know, it's about the mission. And if we can get the conversation to focus on achieving the mission in a way that, um, per, you know, is both achieves the mission, but also is protective of our constitutional rights and people's privacy and other things like that, then there's actually space for um, solutions.
1: All right. Anything else?
2: No, thank you very much. What, are your, what
1: is your most scared of besides switching of, of addresses?
2: Oh, so I'm actually really worried about something that is completely accidental that we don't even understand. Which is? So that somebody actually decides to try to do something that, and they play around with a piece of malware or something that they really don't understand what it does and we end up with some sort of catastrophic effect. That's what I actually so think. So like
1: a digital Ebola kind of yeah, thing.
2: Yeah, something like that, that we don't even understand.
1: All right then. On that happy note. <laughs> I'm but the oh, of hey, happiness. go use Tinder. It's great. Okay. Um, anyway, thank you very yeah, much. Ashley
2: Madison while you're at it.
1: No, don't do that. Um isn't that does is that close? That closed, right? Is yeah, closed? they closed. Oh, you know, I don't know that. Um okay, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. <laughs> you walked right we into help that. We helped close them down. Yeah, okay. Um, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. This is an ongoing discussion. It's a really important one. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Michael for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is at Eric America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts Recode Media, Pivot, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Special thanks to Manny's for hosting us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.
0: Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty, and it's possible that your business could benefit from AI integration. SAP Business AI can help your business innovate, whether it's supply chain, finance, human resources, sales and marketing, even a generative AI co-pilot. SAP Business AI can offer the solutions you've only dreamt of. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI.